We're now two rounds into the TikTok Women's Six Nations and following World Cup anguish at the end of last year, the Red Roses are back up and running. Thumpings of Scotland and Italy have provided the perfect start, but the sternest tests are to come. And joining me, Chris Hewitt, Nick Kane, and digital editor Nick Powell to look ahead to the rest of the tournament is one of the faces of women's rugby, Maggie Alfonsi. Well, it was a fairly chaotic weekend of rugby, whether you were tuning into the Champions Cup or the Women's Six Nations, or both. It's the latter we're primarily focusing on today. The panel with me being Chris Hewitt, Nick Kane, and I should actually reintroduce Nick Powell, our digital editor, for his first appearance in season two and his first appearance on YouTube. How are you, Nick? Yeah, good to be here. I'm, I'm a bit disappointed you're not covering the Papa John's Community Trophy uh, that we <laughs> played this weekend. Oh, uh, yeah, I got stuck into that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Chris, who is frowning wildly at you right now. We maybe we'll get into. Are you speaking in ancient Hittite or something? What what <laughs> what did you what did you say then? It's like the the Papa John's Community <laughs> Cup. It's uh, it's a competition being run by the RFU. We're in the level nine and below competition. My my team. Oh damn! I missed it. I know. Yeah, a couple of brilliant games. Just couldn't squeeze it in with all the rugby last week. <laughs> <laughs> Well, welcome back, Nick. Um, <laughs> already a flavour of the dynamic that you'll be adding to the podcast. And our special guest today is a Red Roses World Cup winner and World Rugby Hall of Famer, Maggie Alfonsi. How are you doing, Maggie? I am very well, really well, actually, after obviously what was a good weekend of rugby. Um, I've got a bit of a cold, got two kids, you know, they pass their germs on all the time. So apart from that, I am I am doing well. I think everyone's recovering from a bit of something or other at the moment. I had it last week. I barely managed to get through the hour of recording. Podcasting is quite difficult when you've lost your voice. Were you at Franklin's Gardens at the weekend? I was not, no, no. But I was watching. Um, I, I uh, wasn't involved in that game in regards to TV-wise. So, uh, But it was good to observe and see the, uh, see the England team do very well. Let's get straight into that side of things then. Obviously... You can't talk about the Red Roses without mentioning November and what happened there. And there'll be certainly some demons that they're trying to shed. You probably know from experience. Two wins from two, 50 plus points every time. Is that pretty much what was needed to extinguish those demons? Yeah, definitely. You know, like after any big defeat, especially one which they had built up for so long, um, it, you know, to recover in a way that they have has been brilliant. Um, I mean, look, they haven't played against New Zealand and that was their that's their big real um, team that they define themselves against, you know. Um, but to, to do well against Scotland, which was an impressive fixture, um, impressive performance in that round one, and then in round two, playing against uh, Italy and scoring that many tries, this England team look impressive. And it's really interesting considering they've got injuries, They've got a captain who's retired. So that's like 141 captains you've lost straight away from this team. Um, and they've got all this young talent and they're still thriving. So it's a it's an exciting team that's going into uh, a World Cup campaign, what, less than three years away before the next World Cup for them. So um, they've, they've bounced back incredibly well. Chris, one thing that has sort of plagued the Red Roses coming into this tournament is injuries. They're 19 injuries. I think 19 is the, is the number at the moment that they're hit by um, in total. And one thing that's interesting with me is that in some ways is a blessing in disguise. We, we've reprimanded Eddie Jones thousands of times on this podcast after 2019 for not pushing the boat out with his selections, bringing in new faces, trying new combinations. Chris, with all these injuries, 
Simon Middleton has the chance to do that in his first two games. We've got Holly Aitchison, who's gone very well at 10. We've got debuts for players like Delaney Burns, Emily Robinson, Luggy Tuama and Tatiana Hurd in the midfield. You get to do all those combinations. He kind of has to do what Eddie Jones should have done after the defeat of South Africa. Well, it gives you more strings to your bow. Um, you know, a, a, a good coach will... Um, uh, and look, Eddie, Eddie Jones is a good coach, no matter how... how much we've criticised him or for what reasons. I mean, Eddie has a track record which tells you what a great coach he was. But I think what he didn't do with England was uh, was um, was was stretch the game, stretch his number of options, just increase those options so that you can adapt um, to a given circumstance during a match. So when you have a whole bunch of injuries as the Red Roses have and new players come in, I think the positive way of looking at that is what can we do? What do these new players bring to the mix that we can add on to the stuff that we know we're good at? Um, you know, the Red Roses would have had maybe some criticism in that final last November. Well, it's not really criticism. They, they were particularly dominant in a, in a particular area of the game and they absolutely squeezed as much out of that as they possibly could. May not have been the most attractive or, or exhilarating form of rugby, but it was pretty down to right the way through but if they go into the next world cup with a plan a a plan b and a plan c as opposed to a and b or maybe just a if they were playing new zealand in in november then that can only be a good thing so you have to look at it positively england are very strong for lots of reasons that i'm sure we'll we'll, we'll get into and, and and around the whole structure of women's rugby at the moment um we, where there is good and bad at work but in pure selection terms the more people are in the mix, the more options you walk into a tournament with, the better it must be. Maggie, is that something you've noticed that I don't know how much you've been in conversation with Simon Middleton or the player leadership group since the World Cup, but there is a need for a, one, a personnel change um, and obviously new captain coming in, new coach coming in at the end of the tournament that, you know, we'll get into that later, but also a, a potential new brand, a new identity. Yeah, look, after any Rugby World Cup campaign, teams have to evolve. They have to bring players in, management changes. That's just the reality of World Cup cycles. And um, as Chris, Chris has already touched on, you know, you need to have a depth of almost three jerseys um, per jersey. Um, you need to have depth of players that can slot in. You know, you can mix up your combinations. And if I look at the, the Red Roses in particular, They've got depth throughout. You know, if I look at their their quality of their players, I feel like any of those players could could effectively start in another nationality's uh, jersey because they're so good, you know. And the England pathway has spent a lot of time. I used to work for the Rugby Football Union. You know, my job was to work on the England pathway. So we spent a lot of time working with our under-18s, our under-20s, ready for this moment now. And that is a result of that. You've got loads of players who can play in any position um, or who can change position. I think that's probably a strength of the women's game. You know, you've got a, you've got effectively a, a second row who can slot in at eight. You've got a, a a prop. You could put in the back row, but we don't want to. But, you know, you've got you've got players who have that ability to um, can play in multiple positions and that gives them a lot of depth and variety in the way they play. And, you know, yes, England had criticism in that Rugby World Cup final in, 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 the, in the sense that they were playing a certain way and actually now as a result of it, they're having to play different ways to, 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 to win games. 
Nick, as a lover of the set piece, what did you make of Nick Canis's? What did you make of the criticism of the over-reliance of them on them all back in November last year? Well, I mean, I think that the the first thing to, to start with a positive is that their driving mall was an exceptional weapon. But I think as um, as others have alluded to, it, it's not enough. And it wasn't enough against New Zealand in a game that England always knew was going to be their make or break in that tournament. That was the, you know, that was the acid test. And um, I think that it, it, it was it was an over-reliance. And I think that the only problem with the Six Nations that I see and the, the magnitude of the uh, the winning margins that England have had in their first two games is whether the wide game that they're playing, um, although, you know, I mean, I think Abby Dow is ex is exceptional and Jess Breach has, has obviously shown her finish, finishing prowess as well. I think that um, the the real issue is, is whether it will, um, you know, whether they'll make the gains that they need to to beat their two key rivals, um, you know, New Zealand, obviously, the world champions, and France. Uh, because France took England, um, uh, you know, close in, in that World Cup. And uh, I think that uh, it's going to be, you know, I mean, obviously, the, it's the last game of this Six Nations, and that will be, uh, again, the true yardstick of, of, of where England are. Um, or the New England are. While you've brought up France, we may as well get to that then. Um, not only a yardstick of where the New England are, but also where women's rugby is. Uh, Maggie, it's obviously at Twickenham. I don't know how many tickets have been sold so far. I just know that they've announced that it's over the 42,000 and whatever it is that would be a world record for a women's game. The goal, and we've had several women's players on on the podcast, uh, Sarah Hunter, Sadia Kabea, who I'll ask you about in a bit, actually. Um, they've always said the goal is the Twickenham sellout. And 2025 is looking most likely, I think. But do you think a sellout is possible come England France time this year? I, I don't know if it was possible come that game. Um, and actually, do we want it to be a sellout now? I mean, the reality is we want to build build that excitement. And, and wow, wouldn't it be amazing to sell out in a 2025 Women's Rugby World Cup at home, and hopefully it's England in the final. I think that would be a greater milestone. Um, it's like we saw with the Lionesses, they built and built until they got to the Europeans final, and then wow, what a sellout! So, um, it do you know what? Forty-two thousand is amazing for a standalone women's international match. That's absolutely brilliant, um, and it will only hopefully show that it's possible. Um, I can't wait. It's going to be a big game. Um, look, I'll be honest, the French haven't probably been at their very best yet. They've had, like any team, um, men's or women's team, post a World Cup, they've had retirements, they've had um, some injuries, and they've changed of their head coaches. So, that you know, that has all played its part. Um, they had a challenging fixture against Italy in round one, uh, and then in round two, they've, they've sort of picked up their confidence and have performed incredibly well. Um, and Ireland, again, unfortunately, aren't at their very strongest. So, you feel for the French that they're starting to build momentum and get used to being a, a different team, an involving team. But that final match against England, um, as Nick has already highlighted, you know, effectively, you know, what when it comes to the Women's Six Nations, it's, it's sort of always been England and France. So that final match will be a testing fixture. But look, don't count out the Welsh in particular. They are, they've been... Uh, 
they've they've one year into their professional contracts takes time for financial um improvements to make a difference but this welsh team have a mindset and attitude that they want to prove the prove the world that they're a good side and they're two out of two at the moment as well so i think england will have a a definitely a challenging a more challenging fixture in round three do you get the sense maggie that this is um this is just an exhilarating time for women's team sport the 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 potential growth and the potential profile of the of the big women's teams team games, which are pretty much the same as the big men's team games in 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 this neck of the woods, rugby, football, cricket. I mean, it's just a fantastic time to be around it, and if it's managed properly, the sort of sky's the limit, isn't it? Absolutely. I feel like I have this conversation probably every year because we're on this crest of a wave that continues and continues and keeps getting bigger and better. You know, 2012, we had the Olympics and, and there was a significant amount of women who won gold medals and, you know, um, many team events did incredibly well. And then you've seen other teams, women's cricket have obviously won their 2020 World Cups and they've won their Test Cricket World Cups. And then you've got football, obviously, Lionesses and so on and so on. So look, What's been great is that we're on this crest of a wave um, and it's about continuing it and continuing to push for for um, further opportunity, sponsorship, you name it. Um, and, and the key thing in the women's game in particular, and I say it's quite a lot, you know, it's great that we've got England doing incredibly well, but really for the women's game to progress and to continue to stay in that uh, competitive world, we need all teams to to be supported in that way. That's when you've got a real, um, that's when you've got jeopardy with every game, really. And that's what we're striving for. And we're starting to see that, obviously, with all the teams in the Women's Six Nations now having professional contracts, that's taken that step forward. So you're absolutely right, Chris. Sky is the limit. Um, and uh, we've just got to keep striving to keep pushing it forward. And and we'll, we'll reach a stage where you'll feel like, wow, every team has almost got the same support and the level of um, financial and, and, you know, general media support like England team have got. Every team will hopefully have that going forward. Maggie, a player you, well, you say you, you get asked that question quite a lot. A player you probably get asked about quite a lot as well is Sadia Kabea, who came on the podcast back in, would have been end of October time. Quite a character from what I remember. And obviously there are parallels made between the two of you. Um, I think you've been quoted saying she's better than you, if, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. I say that again. <laughs> that was just <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I was going to ask you to, to qualify that statement. But my first question is, who was the better shot putter? Oh, very good question. Um, so uh, I actually thought I was a pretty decent shot putter. I don't know what her actual final distance was. So I tried to get to the Olympic Games in 2016 yeah, to right. Rio. Um, let's talk. Not, let's not talk about it because I didn't make it. But uh, you know, I put myself out there, and um, I think the, the thing. What's the furthest I threw? Actually, is I did did pretty well. You know, I was well over what 30 meters or something going towards 40 so it's pretty good in the women's uh shot put um but i was never going to be able to be olympic standard which is incredibly fast so and the weight gets heavier um i mean if you don't know it who's listening you know it's just throwing a metal ball as far as you can go um not the most entertaining sport in the world i'll be honest but it's it is a it's a physically powerful sport so um i would uh, i couldn't tell you how who who was a better shot putter. I'd like to say that I was, but I did it quite a long time ago when I had young legs. So I like to think that I was, I was pretty decent back then, but uh, it's cool to think that she came from the same, same sort of uh, world as athletics and then found rugby after. Well, you've spoken about obviously 
players from athletic backgrounds making good back rowers. Do you think that's part of the reason that she has burst on the onto the scene quite like she has, 21 years old and is already being earmarked as a future England great? Yeah. Do you know, I have to say, I, I think some of the best sporting athletes in rugby have cut, have got have had another string to their bone of done other sports. You know, I've seen a lot of really good gymnasts actually come into rugby and they're they're again they've got really good strength. Judo uh, martial arts people have come from that world um, it's funny like I, I I now I compete I do stuff in CrossFit and actually I see a lot of rugby players come into CrossFit uh, and gymnasts come into CrossFit and they're better CrossFitters because of the, their past experience in other sports so it definitely adds to their their skills and their repertoire but yeah someone like her in particular so ideas uh, she's pretty much physically powerful very strong has really good hands as well um, so it's very much got a back's sense of how to play the game very intelligent player 21 years old so she's hopefully got a long career ahead of her um and I say it's quite a bit now as well like what she's lucky about is that she's got healthy competition there's Marley Packer who he plays in, in, in the back row you've got Alex Matthews um Sarah Beckett Zoe Oldcroft there's so many players in that back row who are all fighting for a jersey and that makes you push yourself and be better at playing that position it's the same in the, in the men's game. You've got to have healthy competition. Otherwise, you rest on your laurels a little bit. Um, and thankfully, in a weird way, the back row is always quite competitive. And they're all a bit of a different breed as well. So they love that uh, competition, especially in, in training. I'm not going to ask you to say that she's better than you again, but qualify what you meant when you said that. Yeah. Um, I said she, she was better than me with regards to, uh, you know, Kicking a football. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. So look, do you know what's really interesting? We're both from different generations. So she's she's does what she does really well with the team that she's in. And then when I played, I did what I did incredibly well with the team that I was part of. And I was called the machine and uh, because I, I for me it was all about tackling. Like I tackled, I was physically aggressive. So um let's let's probably just say I was the best in my era and she was she's becoming the best in her era. Um but you've got to remember I had a long career as well. So she's got she's got a, few, a big future ahead of her. I know she'll continue to to strive to one day be world class. Yeah, well put. And now we mentioned Wales. Um and Nick Powell, I'm gonna to come to you about Wales. Structurally to me, they have looked like a slightly different outfit. I mean that in a positive way this year. Do you think that's professionalism kicking in, even only a year in? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's still a few things that, that Wales need to address as a team, but definitely you can see, uh, I think Sarah Byrne mentioned it in her interview after the England game as well, because she had obviously watched um, the Wales game the day before. You can see their progression and you can actually see how they're coached and how things are are, are actually put together as a team. Um, and they're also very good at keeping their composure in the important moments in the game, which was probably what got them over the line against Scotland, you know, they scored tries within three minutes of each half. When Scotland cut the gap to two points, they scored within three minutes again. Um, and and I think that that was just, you know, that, that you can just see that professional edge coming into them. And, it, it you know, it will serve them well for England in, in a week and a half or whenever it is. But I've got in my notes about Wales, discipline underlined about four times because... If they have the same discipline that they had against Scotland, England will be away from them by half time. And they have got to improve that area. And as a you know, a more professional outfit, 
that should be what the focus is in the next week and a half in preparing for that game. Do you see it as a banana skin for England or potentially more than that as well? It sort of depends how Wales play. I mean, you know, they've, they've, it, Wales have got to try and disrupt England as much as possible without conceding those penalties in that first 40 minutes. I think one thing I would say Wales come into this game with a similar with about a similar chance of winning as England men did when they played Ireland. And what England men did really well in that first kind of 25 minutes, half an hour, was they were disrupting Ireland's attacking play, but not giving away silly penalties. And also they were benef- benefited by the fact that Johnny Sexton wasn't getting any penalties they did get far enough up the field. Um, but as soon as England start conceding regular penalties and um, Sexton's starting to get it into the corner, and you're giving a team a team like like Ireland opportunities in the same way. If Wales are giving England women opportunities um, from 15 meters or less out, then then England will take them. So they've got to make sure that they defensively are disruptive, but but keep that discipline. I think the one issue with the Six Nations at the moment is obviously not too many really really close games from a Red Roses point of view, and that's maybe where they came unstuck slightly in the World Cup is that they're not used to the level of pressure of all of a sudden playing against a New Zealand in front of that many people, you know, sellout crowd. Um, And the fact that Wales are getting up to the standard where you're now asking the question, okay, this isn't a foregone conclusion, is a good thing. I do think it is, yeah. I mean, um, look, every team needs a level of pressure, needs that exposure, um, so when I look at Wales, I can only see them growing and getting better. You know, their their mindset, their attitude, uh, and then you add that professional contracts in the back, but you know, back, add to that as well. Um, it only makes them a team that's that's moving in the right direction. Apologies, there's a copy machine in the background going off. So you, if you want an Americano, I'll sort you out. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's very much, if I look at Wales, if we continue to expose them to the right level of um pressure that side will only continue to learn and they've got young players coming through England like you've touched on as well in that World Cup final um, they're used to a big crowd Um, they're used to playing a team like New Zealand and maybe potentially at their home turf but actually it's about making those right decisions when the pressure is really on when you've got 78 minutes to go and do you change that line out you know it's that, that, that they're the real sort of scenarios which that England team will only learn from now um, having that that sort of huge loss because um, now they'll go, okay, right, what decisions do we make when put under real pressure? So teams like that only get better and, and I feel like Wales will grow. But um, just touching what Nick said as well, I absolutely agree, discipline. You've got to be, you've got to be incredibly disciplined against England because even though they haven't got their normal kickers, you know, Aitchison's got a really good boot on her. Um, uh, Lagi Tuangi has a really good boot on her in terms of convergence and that's something that they'll be quite confident about but I also would say for Wales don't give England too much respect um, but I don't need to say that to the Welsh because they, they they don't like to so um, I, I think it's important that they just come out and just take England on just absolutely attack them and don't give them space don't respect them at the, in the in the set piece don't respect them in the loose play and, and just really have a go because England don't always get that um, I think sometimes teams are just in awe of them and they just sit back and let them run at, run at them where actually I think the Welsh team especially because so many of them play in the English Premiership the Premier 15s they know them quite well and how to take them on Nick you look like you're about to say something yeah look I, I, I think that um, 
you know, every competition has to have the opportunity to grow. And, um, you know, the women's Six Nations is still relatively in its infancy. But tournaments and competitions thrive in the end on you know on, on that level and the uh, of intensity and ferocity in 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 the uh, in the matches and at the moment Ireland Scotland and Italy are 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 sort of well adrift and what I'm what I'm wondering and what I uh, I I'd, I'd like to ask Maggie in a way is how long does she think it will take before those three teams in particular and Wales to a lesser extent get to the level where they are really pushing uh, England and France every time they meet? So one, Ireland was at that point, you know, they won a Six Nations back in 2013. And then frustratingly, and it's been well documented, they haven't had the support that they that they need to have had. And, um, you know, the, the Irish Rugby Union have now started to invest in them and they're starting to get that support. Um, and that, that will take time. Um, and they have the players, they have, you know, they have the players that can do it. It's the support, it's the infrastructure in particular. You know, England have had this infrastructure that's been fairly embedded over the last eight, nine years, you know, of a pathway of players coming through. And then the investment from the RFU into the women's premiership has made a big difference as well. So how long do I think it's going to take before the likes of Ireland will get there? Italy is currently, you know, they're, they're one of the third highest ranked na um, nations in Europe, uh, in the Six Nations. So actually, they're a good side. Unfortunately, they're just not as good as England. And you saw that, but they challenged France. So I think it will take definitely a couple of seasons, two to three seasons. I, mean, I think when we get to 2025, we'll see it. We'll see the, the gap closing. Um, you know, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll openly say it. I really want all those teams to get incredibly close to England. I want to switch on and watch a game and go. I don't know who's going to win this. Um, and that's that's a big bit for us. You know, that Wales Scotland game was incredibly close. Um, but the England game, I think we knew from the start, Italy weren't are going to be able to compete. And how do we ensure that we develop that? And it's important that the government buildings are investing into those players. Yeah. When, when you look at this from the global scale, Maggie, and, and we're, we're looking at the next World Cup and the one beyond that, do you think that there is the potential, there's clearly the potential in, in the United States to do something uh, with women's rugby, do something really productive and get a really strong side out there, well-funded if that's, you know, and well-prepared. Do you think Canada can sort of cling on uh, to their... Um, amazing performance levels, actually, considering, uh, and it does mirror, I would hate to think that Canadian rugby or Canadian women's rugby is going to mirror what's happened to the blokes in um, in the professional era, where, you know, we all remember the Canadian men's team giving the All Blacks a real hurry up in the quarterfinals of the World Cup in 91. Professionalism kicks in and they're just behind the eight ball and have been even further behind the eight ball each time a World Cup has come around and now they haven't qualified for, uh, for 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 this year's World Cup. Do you think that Canada can buck that trend or are they on the same slope, do you believe? So it's interesting, in Canada, in the women's game in particular, they had a huge focus on sevens rugby because they were, you know, getting the financial support. It's an Olympic uh, sport. So they were getting all the investments. So a lot of players actually crossed over to the, fifth, sorry, the sevens game. And the 15s game in Canada suffered quite significantly. Um, I think what we're seeing now with the Canadian game, uh, with the women, they a lot of them actually have come over to England. 
again, our Premier 15s is, is, in, is a strong competition. So a lot of them are over here in different teams scattered around. And, you know, they go back to the national side and they are putting in performances. They, you know, they really do challenge England every time they play each other. Um, I think that the, the key thing for the Canadian women's side is, again, that continued investment because a lot of them had to crowdfund to play against, well, they came over here in the winter, you know, a lot of them had to crowdfund um, because they didn't have that same full investment like the sevens would have. So this, you know, this is where we, this is the key for the women's game. Like we need to ensure that investment has been provided for all players um, globally to ensure that we can continue to rise the standard uh, and give those, those athletes some great support. You know, those who've made a decision to leave their country, to come over to England, you know, find a job, accommodation that's, that's a big old decision for a player to make it's effectively for the women's game we've gone from amateur to, to professional and some of those players have to make these big decisions but they're doing it because if anything it will improve the women's game if they if they make that step so fair play to many of them who've done that and as a result of that they they go back to their national side and they've, they've taken them another level so that Canadian side I definitely feel will progress and it's a shame that the men's side have gone from where they have because I remember them to be a very strong side and now not qualifying. And I spend a lot of my time in in Canada, so uh, I, was, I followed the Canadian men quite quite a lot, really. But um, you like to think the USA, the Canadians, especially now with the, the World Cup going to USA, you know the, the standard of rugby will continue to improve and the investment will, will hopefully grow as well. Maggie, shall we do your round in rugby fifteen? Um, which is quick, 15 quick-fire questions, just as a little interlude before we get back to Six Nations. Go for it, Ollie. I mean, I've got a bit of Tina Turner in the background, but go for it, yeah. That's... Is that what that is? It might appear every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll, we'll plough through anyway. Um, we'll go straight in. Nickname? Uh, machine. Machine, that's such a good name. Maggie the Machine, not just a machine. Not a washing machine or dishwashing machine, but Maggie the Machine. <laughs> I think it spoke for itself, to be honest. <laughs> Best rugby memory had to be, weird as it may seem, losing the Rugby World Cup final in the women's game in 2010 because it was in England in front of a huge crowd. Um, and it was the first time I've ever seen that crowd in women's in the women's game. So that was special. And I guess you get the narrative of the 2010 to the 2014 as well. Yeah, that failure helped us go on to win the world, next exactly. World Cup. So I say it's a special memory for that reason. Powerful. And most embarrassing rugby memory? Oh, um. I don't really, I'm just trying to think, the most embarrassing rugby memory. Um, it might have been, oh, I don't know if it's embarrassing to others, but for me, I remember playing against France in the Six Nations in, in France, in their stadium. I can't remember which one it might have been. It might have been Montpellier. Um, and I remember making a break and thinking to myself, I've got the legs to keep running. And instead of making a pass to Emily Scarrett on the inside, who's much faster than me and probably much more talented than me, I thought, you know what, I've got the legs to, to do another 50 metres. And I just got absolutely smashed from behind and knocked the ball on um, in front of a crowd. And I remember thinking to myself, God, Emily, you just didn't, you know, <laughs> blame Emily for it. But the reality, it was me. So it was embarrassing to me at the time because I actually thought I had the legs of a 20-year-old when actually they were not listening to me. So, yeah, that was embarrassing for me. Have you ever admitted to Emily that it was your fault since? Or no, she, no, she knows it was my fault. I mean, the whole, I think I remember match analysis the next day in the team, in, uh, in the team room, and Graham Smith goes, let's watch this again Maggie what should you have done and you know when it's the worst thing in front of the whole in team you're like yeah I should have passed it you're absolutely right it was no, it was my fault that's not good pre-game tune oh my pre-game tune so I used to um absolutely love Evanescence 
um, a really good band. I can't remember what the song was called though, but it was, um, yeah, it was one of those rock, it's a rock pop sort of band. So their music always just kind of got me going really to, really to take on a, a take on a team. And, and you've got to know when to sort of play that song. Cause I don't do play it on the coach. I'm going to get too hyped up for it. I need, well, so I basically yeah. had a repeat for <laughs> an hour until I basically got onto the field. Was it Bring Me to Life? That's the That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Thank you for wondering. Are you are you, are you an Evanescence fan, aren't you? Yeah, I, can tell. I am. I am. There you go. I don't tend to admit it publicly. So oh, like... you should do. I want to be proud. <laughs> well, you have now, Oliver. <laughs> post game meal. Post game meal. I don't know if it's post game meal or, or pre game, but I love pasta. So pasta, a bit of tomato sauce, whack on some cheese, and I'm good yeah. to go. Or every now and again, if I want a bit more of a culture to my life, Put a bit of pesto. So um, pretty much pasta. That's it. Best player you played against. Best player played against. Actually, it has to be an English player. Um, and it, it's, I'd say it's Heather Fisher um, when I played against her, when she played for Walsh and Bristol as well. Obviously retired fairly fairly uh, soon after my career. But, uh, yeah, always just a, she's just a physically strong athlete. Um, and, and I've always been inspired by her because of that. Best player you've played with. Do I say Heather Fisher again? Is that, is, yeah, is that yeah, when I say that? Best player, um, best player I played with. Uh, I have to say it would probably, yeah, I'd say Heather Fisher again. Do you know what? She was one of my, my, my actually, no, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll say a combination of Heather Fisher and Nolly Waterman. You know, Nolly Waterman, fantastic athlete. Uh, just, I'd say just like Jason Robertson, amazing feet, very quick, and, and you just don't see what she's going to do. You'd hate to tackle her in training because you would never tackle her. Um, and then Heather Fisher again because she was strong and she was she would physically match me, and we would always have that that you know uh, conflict in training. So I'd say those two. Favorite player right now. Favorite player right now. Um, I would say if, I, if we're going to go all the way now to um, not say obviously English player, I'm going to say I'm going to say a French player actually, Pauline Bourdon. Um, she plays number nine. Uh, actually, my pr- my previous player before that was another French player was Laura Sansu. Uh, she she's like she's just a, she's like Dupont. She used to be, you know, quick. Does does a lot of uh, hands are great. Just absolutely fantastic athlete. Uh, and then Pauline Pauline Bourdon is very similar to that. Can play ten, can play nine, and I find that quite exciting to watch. So I'd probably say her. Um, and this is in you know in the in the in the women's game. Um, but if I if I was to say in the men's game at the moment in terms of like rugby, I'm gonna say I'll go to England. I'll say um, Lewis Ludden is probably one of my faves at the moment. But my players always change. <laughs> if the team's doing well, then I'll say it's that player. If the team's not doing well, then I'll sort of mix it up. But yeah, I'll say those are two players at present. Interesting that you picked an England men's player for a team that's doing well. So it's... <laughs> I know. Right? Let's take that back. Let's say he's doing well. He's doing well. <laughs> rugby idol. My rugby idol will probably have to be uh, Lisa Burgess. So uh, she used to play for the Welsh women's side, was the captain and was my PE teacher. So she was the reason why I got into the sport because of her uh, and was on the Welsh women's, so the Welsh rugby board as well. So someone who I've admired and went into world governance and that sort of thing that I uh, currently trying to do. So I would say she's probably be my big idol in the women's game. In the men's game, pass me Richard, uh, Richie McCall, just, you know, again, an honourable man and an absolute legend in, in the sport. So those two would probably be out my outstanding ones. Favourite stadium? Favourite stadium? Oh, do you know, um, 
I'm going to say it's my home stadium. You know, it sounds obvious, but my club home stadium, and that's Stonex. So Stonex Stadium, Saracens. I love it because it's, you know, I'm Saris through and through. If you cut me, I'm, I'm black and red and white in, in between. You know, it's just very much my club. So, and, and and if I look at that club, it's got a lot of, you know, history to it. It's not, it's still a new stadium, but it's got the history to it. And if I was to say another stadium, but I wouldn't call it a stadium, I'd say it's a, a park, um, would be uh, Bramley Road in, in um, Cockfosters, where Saracens men and women used to play. And it's, you know, it's got the... It's got the holes in the ground. It's got a bit of dog poo as well, which brings a bit of authentic rugby to it. So, like they, that's you know, it's things that they're the ones which I love because they've got they've got memories, they've got history, and and it's guess what? It's where I was brought up. So I say it's my home. So you love playing rugby in four G and dog poo. You, you've nailed it, Ollie. That would be my perfect ground. Yeah, I can see why they. <laughs> Favorite gym exercise. Favorite gym exercise. Some would say, you know, I love I love my beach weights, but actually, um, my favorite gym exercise would have to be I love a bit of toes to bar. I mean, it's a bit more of a CrossFit exercise movement, but you know, you hold the bar, bring your legs up, and you hit your toes hit the bar. Um, it doesn't require any weight. It's just hard to do because it works the abs. And I know I've got lots of people here who've got six packs, so you guys get it. It's about trying to lift the legs up and then just working that six pack. So I, I tend to do that quite a bit where I can. I used to have my toes on the bar most Saturday nights, but <laughs> different bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple of six packs in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> occupation if rugby doesn't exist. Yeah. Occupation didn't um, occupation that didn't exist. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Oh yeah, yeah. Um so one music, I love music, so I'd like to think that I would have gone down the route of music. Um but then again, I think to myself, every now and again I see the good old James Haskell you know banging it out on those decks with his uh DJing. And I think I'd love to have been a DJ. I mean, I would never have been as good as him. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just obvious. But I would like to think that I would have gone down that route of I love music. So music has always been my thing, really. So um I I who knows, who knows where it would take me, but I would I, I played the guitar. So I was acoustic, electric guitar, um, went to a music school sort of in the weekends as well. So those it would have been music for sure. Were you one of those people at school that was just sickeningly talented at everything then? Well, Ollie, your words, not mine, but um I would like to say that I, I was quite talented. I just, you know, I didn't, but I wasn't really good at the old uh, other kind of instruments. I just loved the guitar was something which I, I get get to playing a bit of the piano. But I just love, I just loved music and I loved hearing it. So I always feel like those who do sports are quite creative, so they can turn their hand to doing a bit of music. But it's funny when you stop playing music, you just stop learning how to read music. So I do wish I could go back to it. So I might try and find myself back into it again because it just, it's actually quite a, it's a fun thing to do, isn't it? It's, it's a skillful thing to do superstitions um my superstition previously used to be before so when you we would have our england shirt presentations the night before the, our, our match and you get given your jersey so i know it sounds odd and I, I look back now and I think oh that's a bit gross but i would wear my england shirt to bed because i'd be like oh i might not ever get a chance to wear this again so i'd wear it to bed and obviously get up get up and take it off um and then uh because i'd just be really proud of it I mean, as my career progressed, I then stopped to do not do that because I was like, that's really not hygienic. Um, but I would at least pack my bag the night before and then put the seven jersey on top of the, like when I open my bag, I'd see the jersey. So 
I sort of like, I just respected the jersey and I really felt like once you get it, it's, you know, you might not get it again. So that was my, that was sort of my superstition. I feel like a prerequisite for a pyjama top is not to be a tight England shirt. It didn't make sleeping comfortable, I'll no, be honest. No, it not with the pre-match nerves either. I like how wearing it to bed is respecting the jersey as well. <laughs> Rugby law you would change. The rugby law that I would change probably be some might see it as quite old school, but like I have to say, the good old bit of rucking, you know, um, especially as someone who's at your back row who's in that breakdown environment. Yes, Chris, you get it. You know, you're in that breakdown environment, and there's always, usually, a number seven just lying out in the way, and you have to sort of go ref, and you sort of have to think. Obviously, you think about the ways right now to get them out, but I'd love to just get them out in a different way. Um, so I'd probably say that, but obviously, I don't want to be. I would hate to. I would bring that law back because now I'm not playing it because <laughs> I would be at number seven that would be lying in the bottom of the ground ready to be rucked. So I would say that would be the one I'd bring back. But obviously, you know, we don't, we don't want to hurt players, but uh, that would be something similar. That would, I, I do miss that law. That was a good one. Yeah. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby? The best thing about working in rugby, I'd have to say, is um, I'd say I really enjoy the camaraderie, the social side of what we have. Um, like I can go to any sporting environment, any sort of any stadium, any working setting, broadcasting or whatever it may be. And I feel like you should automatically click with people. And that's what I really enjoy working in this rugby environment. Like we all, it's a, it's a language that we all understand and we just get on with each other. And that's what you don't always see that in other worlds. So I'd say that's what I love about it. That social interaction and that ability just to get on with each other. Awesome. That was a very eclectic um, 15. Matt, 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 could, I, could I ask you, just, just on, the, on the, the rucking side of things, which is yes. some of us have been banging on about this since oh, time immemorial. Um, yes. uh, do, do, you, do you, I mean, you, you played seven, you were in the seven in the women's game, played in the age of Jacqueline and clear eights and all the stuff that surrounds it. We've now got what a lot of people consider to be an existential crisis in the game in terms of health and safety. And a lot of people think that the jacking position in particular is a head injury waiting to happen or a, an upper body injury waiting yeah. to happen. Yes, rucking was painful, but at least by and large, people were staying on their feet. No, I that. And it was never legal to go no, anywhere near anyone's head in a ruck action. Do you think that perversely, although it looks a bit brutal, rucking is actually safer than the jackaling stuff that we see these days? Well, I don't know. It's a good, uh, it's an interesting point. I haven't really thought about that. Um, that jackaling is an interesting thing. Like as a, as a number seven, you just, you don't think about your head or your, you just get yourself in that position. And I used to make sure I, you know, the key was to get my head lower than the shoulders of those coming in. And almost I protected my head by squeezing myself into that position. So if anything, when I got hit, I took the ball with me. So it's funny, like, I never saw Jacqueline as being dangerous or risky, where I guess, look, the game has changed so much since I've played. So people are start, people figure it out. People are figuring out how to get out a Jacqueline. Or they're realizing that if they're going to get Jackal out. You've got to get low, and you and you you are at risk yourself. Um, but it's interesting where when it comes to rugby, you know that is a it it it's it doesn't look great visibly, and that's one thing we have to be aware of in rugby optics. You know, if they're not looking great, we don't want to really present that. But then at the same time, players also made sure they got out of the way quickly because they didn't want it. So you didn't always see it because players were like, "I need to get out because I know that I'm going to get boot." <laughs> on my on me if I don't move out of the way. But we do have to be aware of 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 men of um 
protecting our players as well. So we, as the game progresses, we are in this fine balance between protecting and entertainment. And that's always going to be a challenge for us, I think. And that's why, you know, the laws are changing. I do miss that law, um, but I also understand why it was taken away. So, yeah, we are beginning to see, though, aren't we? What, what we now call counter-rucking, which is sort of rough. <laughs> It's sort of rugging. It's still a number of players on their feet going past the ball. Um, right. You know, one of the one of the issues, to my way of thinking, about the game as it's evolved in the professional era is people stop going past the ball. The game sort of stops at the ball, and there's a contest for the ball with hands, mm. and that was sort of very different to the stuff that was happening pre ninety five. Mm. Now with the what, what I would call rucking, but other people will counter rucking, we are beginning to see people in numbers going past the ball, and it does provide quick possession and and a way of turning over the ball that isn't really available um, um, if if you're not doing that stuff. But it does depend on numbers around the ball, doesn't it? Absolutely. Look, everyone's the people are starting to figure out what's the best way of evolving our game, but actually, how do you make it slightly quicker? You know, everyone knows quick ruck ball. You know, effectively, you 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 catch the opposition defence out, and you, you you're more likely to score a try to an extent. So counter rucking has become the way forward, really, isn't it? You know, get your numbers there and clear out. But teams are very smart. You'll see that teams just don't compete. You know, it's about picking your moment. You'll see it. There'll be a tackle, and then also they just leave it because <laughs> you got to you got to know when the right time is to do it, and when is the right time to counter ruck when you see that there's a vulnerability and there's only one player over the ball that you can clear out. So it's interesting. Defences are smart. It's amazing. I love, you know, rugby has changed significantly and it's it's uh, it's harder to break down a defence and harder to almost um, win the breakdown. Hence, when teams do get on top and are dominant at the breakdown, you see that they generally go to win the game because the breakdown is so significant. Yeah, I mean... For me, the the change in the ruck law is the most has been the worst change that there's been to, in the game. I think that um, one of the things that I, I least like about about the modern game is the uh, the flat line rugby league defence, and the ruck used to commit forwards to the forward game. And we've talked about the the merits of of driving past the ball and also players being on their feet. The flip side of the coin with the jackal and what I'd call the static um, pile-up almost is that you get stuff like the crocodile roll, which is extraordinarily dangerous. And you also get, very often you'll get projectiles, i.e. human projectiles coming in from maybe, you know, a 15, sometimes even a 20-meter run-up to hit a breakdown. And, you know, if you're talking about um, Concussion City, that's probably uh, a large part of it. So I think like uh, Chris and I are of an age where we both played with the game when it was uh, rucking proper. And um, I, I, I felt that with the exception of a few, um, uh, you, you know, you used to get a bit of blood flow from head wounds where people were, uh, too indiscriminate, but the vast majority of rucking, uh, if you like, injuries were superficial, um, uh, you know, a bit of a rake or, or, or whatever else. And with the cameras that you've now got, with the camera, you know, particularly at the top end of the game, it, it, there's no way that the people who were, you know, putting their boots near other people's heads would get away with it now. I would take the game back to rucking, no question. 
I think I'm going to put a pin in that debate for the moment and we may come back to it if we have a little bit of time. But just while we've got Maggie, I think there are two individuals that I would love to get your two cents on. One, Sarah Hunter, for obvious reasons. She had her big send off, um, fantastic send off, actually, at home against Scotland last weekend. Now, we had her on the pod nearly a year ago. And I've got to say, one of the nicest guests we've had. Um, she, I remember she hung around for 20 minutes after we'd stopped recording just to have a chat. And this was the two days after they just won the Grand Slam. And I was just like, oh, what a nut. That was, it was just really not, well, maybe not nice for her. I don't know. She has to talk to me for 20 minutes. But, you know, it was, it was nice for me. She obviously, she loves England rugby. She loves going the extra mile as that sort of sort of emblematizes. And Maggie, England rugby loves her just as much, no? Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to hang around for 20 minutes after this, but I, <laughs> I, love, the fact, <laughs> I love the fact that she did that. Um yeah, England rugby loves that. She embodies everything that England rugby stands for. Um, you know, I've been playing the game for so long, committed so many of her her years to the team. Um, had captain. I think she's the longest serving female captain to have captain England. Yeah. I think that's the stat. I don't know. I, there's so many stats out there. Um, but she's done incredibly well, incredibly well, uh, and gets uh, and gets to retire on her own terms. As you all know, it is not always the choice that you have. Um, injury may play a part, coaches may play a part, or the reality is you're just not got you're out of form, you know, and others are better than you. That's the that's the life and the reality of sport. So she got to do it in her own way, and then got to do it in in Newcastle, and the and the team won, <laughs> which helped as well. Um, and and to my knowledge, she was carrying a bit of a calf injury, so actually she was in a big doubt of even playing that game. So you know amazing to for her to see it through but phenomenal career um done incredibly well um and she also was able to captain with some great players around her so that and that makes your life a bit easier as a captain because you just do your job and then and the rest do theirs so uh yeah she, a great athlete great person um great leader and and now i guess she goes on to her next chapter that obviously opens the door for who becomes captain now and obviously it's Marley Packer for the moment has um taken over Marley's 33 so three or four years younger than Sarah Hunter hopefully she makes it to 2025 question to the floor actually I'll come to Nick Powell first who could you see as a potential other candidate for captain should Marley not make it to 2025 I mean it's it's I, I, it's a tricky one because I just think that that is totally I, I think Packer's definitely got until 2025 I just and it just seems perfectly natural to me she's not dropped at all her her level um but, you know I, I would keep it in the I'd probably keep it in the forwards I mean I think Zoe Allcroft you know you could potentially have her as an option um but I just think you know I think Packer's definitely definitely able to go until 2025 um, obviously, she's only, she's not five tries so far in the competition, but all of them have been for about one yard. But uh, her performance, you know, defensively yesterday, I mean, the number of turnovers. And, and when she wasn't getting the ball back, she was slowing it down for Italy. And it, it just stopped them getting over the game line and having the quick ball that their sort of new structures to stop, stopped it from working completely. Um, and I, I think she just... The fact that she can influence the game so strongly means that she's a perfect captaincy candidate for now. But yes, I mean, who knows what's going to happen beyond that? Um, I think it's it's an interesting decision that the next coach is going to have to make. Certainly, um, whether whether or not 
uh, he or she sees Packer going through to the next World Cup. But but we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Maggie, do you agree with that? So I, I really like what Nick said. You know, at the moment, Packer in particular is is leading from the front, and she's kicked on from the from the World Cup. She's thirty three, so she'll be thirty five come the next World. To be thirty five, yeah, in, in terms of numbers wise, which that's quite. I mean, look, Donny Sexton can do it. Anyone can do it. So you know that. So you think to yourself, if she can make it to that age, come the next World Cup. Um, that would be brilliant. The reality is two seasons, two years is still quite a long time and anything can happen in between that. And there are quality athletes coming through. I think Simon Middleton, even though he's bowing out after this Six Nations, he's tried a few players in that position as captain. So as Nick's already touched on, Zoe Oldcroft has played, has been captain before. Poppy Clill currently injured, but she's been captain. I think Emily Scarrett will probably be the main captain if she stays fit when she comes back because um, she, she's got a, a very overall detailed perspective on the game um but obviously she's out injured um so there's a range and zoe zoe harrison potentially could step into that position um i love a forward being captain i think we all know forwards are brilliant um so i'd love to say say a forward would be the, the person to maintain that position but the reality is the good thing in this england side there's quite a few leaders um who could step up to the plate um, Marley's getting the chance to do it now and she can own that shirt for, for now. The reality is when people come back then, and a new coach comes in, what does he or she want? <laughs> you know, and, and, and what's really going to be better for the team? So that could change. But who, who knows? Right now it's working for England. And my last question for you, Maggie, because I know you need to go in a couple of minutes, is obviously surrounding Simon Middleton. We've mentioned that he's tapping out at the end of this Six Nations. He was assistant coach for that World Cup win in 2014. Someone you know very well, of course. He never got a World Cup win as head coach. That will no doubt be one of his regrets. But do you think it's the right time for him to step away? And how will he be remembered as England head coach? Look, he was a brilliant coach and he still is a brilliant coach. What he's achieved in the women's game has been fantastic. Um, you know, to be assistant coach, to go on to be head coach, go to World Cups, Go to Olympics as well. He was the head coach of the of the Great Britain Sevens uh, team as well. So he's pretty much done a range. And he was the first women's head coach to get BBC Sports Personality Coach of the Year, which is amazing, you know. So um, he, he's uh, no wait, was it BBC? I can't. Really, he won something. No, what did he do? No, he won the World Rugby World Rugby Coach of the Year. That was the first female uh, head coach to do that. So that that. You know that in itself is pre- pretty impressive what he's achieved. So I, I, I think he's he's done everything he possibly can in the game. And unfortunately, the, the thing that he'd want to have got to his list would have been to win a World Cup. Um, but like all of us as players, we have to make that decision at some point. And you have to. I always say finish on the finish whilst you're on the top of your game. That's what I always say. Um, so I guess initially, I'll be honest. I was surprised. I thought he would have departed before the Six Nations and a new coach would have been brought in to enable a new coach to have more time. Because actually, for a new coach to come in, they're not going to get actually what feels like a lot of time to create their team, to mould their team, to be like them. Um, Because, you know, we've got summer, I think some summer fixtures and then you go into autumn. So it's not a lot of time, really. But I think the the one big benefit that Simon Middleton brings by still being in his role right now is whilst there's a lot of injuries, you lose your captain, your your previous captain, it means there's continuity, there's consistency, and he keeps it all together and hopefully builds a foundation ready for the next coach to take that role. But 
I think it'd be interesting what the RFU do because we do need to know who the next coach is going to be uh, fairly soon. Um, but that will obviously be interviews, and then whoever steps into that plate will just need to have that time to build their their team, like we've seen right now with all the other coaches, you know, Wells and England with, with Steve Borthwick and Warren Gatlin. So you need time to really forge your team. Yeah, if you could make another pitch for Wayne Smith. Wait, yeah, it could do. I mean, Wayne Swift keeps retiring, and then he comes back again, and he keeps retiring again. Hey, man, well, but what he achieved was brilliant. And some may say, you know, uh, you bring a coach out of retirement, and he's in, you know, he's done everything in the men's game, and you know that we got we do sometimes question you just bringing somebody in to save the women's game, and he and it wasn't about that. He generally was passionate about the the women's game and wanted to ensure that they did well, and he had to turn around in what six months, but luckily he had fantastic players. And a nation behind them, and he went on and did it. So good on him. Um, so yeah, it, what I've been waiting for would be pretty awesome. But we'd love the good thing is we've got a lot of good, talented coaches in England, which we can lean on, um, and women coaches as well, which we don't see enough of in the Six Nations teams. So I would love to think that there's, there's potential a woman candidate who can really put herself forward for that. But again, there's some good men coaches as well. Lewis Deacon is another one. Assistant coach at the moment for the England team could step up and put his hat, up, hat in the ring for that as well. So, yeah, lots of good potential candidates. Just before you go, is there a name you could give us as your choice for the next England head coach? Uh, well, I just want to let you know, Ollie, I've ruled myself out of it, so it, it can't be me. But, uh, no, you know, Joe Yap is a good one. She's a really good one. Currently director of rugby at Worcester. Um, was previously the England 20s coach. Or still, in, I need to double check that. But uh, you know, she her involvement with the England setup has been quite key. Used to play for the England women's team, so she's a good candidate. I think would be a, a one you probably say could be uh, a confident, have a confident shot at it. Susie Appleby's another one who's uh, you know head coach at Exeter um, women's side, former England player as well. Also scrum half. I mean, scrum half seem to know it know quite a bit about um, telling a referee what to do. So she would be really good as another as another potential candidate so I think those two would probably be my my, my shouting um, shots at it but you've got there's other people like um, Giselle Mavers who's currently at Ealing might not necessarily want to take the role on but she's she's a good one and then you've got Amy Turnos at Harlequin still early in her international coaching career but um, she's she's a good candidate and there's Alex Osprey um, who's at Saracens and Rob Payne who just left the USA women's side so there's lots of people out there who could potentially put their put their hat in the ring lots of options indeed um, and Simon Middleton has said that he thinks it could be time for a female head coach for the Red Roses so I guess we'll find out hopefully or maybe not by the end of the tournament but pretty soon mm-hmm. afterwards right Maggie I know you have to go I apologize for running over by a couple of minutes but thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the rest of the TikTok Six Women Six Nations. Thank you. Thank you all. Take care. Take care, Maggie. Thank you. What's TikTok. Sorry? What's Did you say TikTok? What, what's TikTok? <laughs> who, who were should we not, should we not were, open that can of worms on me? Who were Evanescence? What why does no one speak my language? Because <laughs> no one speaks old English anymore. Oh yes, well, I'm not bloody Chaucer. Oh, I wish. Um, uh, anyway, um, no, you're very not. Good. Chris, I'm not for the first you. time. I'm all at sea. I'll, I'll do this later when I finish listening to Marla's second symphony. That's Joe Marla's, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs>
Much more preferable. <laughs> you, can, you should keep that in. That's quite good. <laughs> okay. Um, there was some other rugby at the weekend to discuss the Champions Cup. I watched Saracens. I watched Harlequins. I didn't have too much time to watch any of the others. Chris, do you want to tell me about La Rochelle? Oh, it's, it was as it's, it's good a Heineken Cup game or, or Champions Cup game, whatever they call it these days. It's as good a European game. We can't even call it Europe now that the South Africans are in it. That's colonialism for you. Um, the thing was, uh, Gloucester went over there without a, without a prayer. They had some kids in the side. Uh, they they had had injuries all over the place. Dear old Billy Twelve Trees was playing it, 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 it outside half. Um and they played in an inventive way that sort of, in a, in a strange way, it wasn't unlike the, the New Zealand-England women's final in November. They had to, uh, they, they knew where they were going to be very deficient and, 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 and overpowered. And they worked out a way of playing, which involved giving the ball a lot of width. They played with tremendous pace, great adventure, some imagination. And they just came up marginally short in the last, in the last pretty much the last move of the game. I think it was the last move of the game. Uh, but it was just, it was, a, it was a packed stadium. The atmosphere was terrific. There was quite a band of travelling support. The whole thing sort of took me back to the golden age of Heineken Cup rugby before various things happened to the tournament. And if you add that on, to the fact that there was the pretty epic finish between Exeter and Montpellier, which was another sort of minor classic of a match. The Saracens game in, in many ways was was far more competitive than I thought it would be last week. And, and Nick was absolutely right in saying that Ospreys would turn up and ask some questions. So all in all, for a, it was around the 16, but it's knockout rugby. It's knockout rugby. And, the, and I fully intend to write a column about like this on um, for, for this weekend's paper, but knockout rugby, which we're largely denied now because of the way that leagues are structured, so you have to wait till the back end of the season for any meaningful knockout rugby. But it was absolutely tremendous, and it was it was a it was a it was a as I say a throwback to the golden age of the tournament, and I'm all for it. I was I was absolutely gripped all weekend by that by that stuff. E- even the Challenge Cup game between Cardiff and Sale was a belting contest. Absolutely yeah. belting contest. So, um, fair play. It's been used and abused that tournament, but it keeps on delivering on the field, and it really did um, at the weekend. It was terrific, absolutely terrific. Yeah, I'd I'd agree. You know, let's hear it for knockout rugby. Let's hear it for teams that are galvanised and um, and are really playing. You know, they're they're putting everything out there to 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 win the game. Gloucester's performance. I thought was, you know, one of the great defensive performances that I've seen because La Rochelle are, you know, we know what a big machine they are. And um, they didn't, you, you know, they knocked La Rochelle out of their stride. Their defensive performance was, you know, seeing when you look at premiership games where very often a lot of the defense seems to be fairly lackluster, um, they, they shut the door on them. And they they had them really in a spin. La Rochelle, you could see as the clock ticked down, you could see the panic begin, begin to set in. And and I suppose that the the thing that marked La Rochelle, La Rochelle out as champions was actually the the um, brilliant precision move 
that they won it with, which is about the only thing that they did with precision yeah. brilliance throughout the whole game. Um, I don't expect them to be, um, you know, to give Saracens that sort of leeway. Uh, but but Gloucester were immense. You know, their defensive effort was 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 fantastic, and to the players and and uh, whoever was responsible for, uh, you know, to getting to them to that sort of sharpness and intensity in defence, huge congratulations. You know, I mean, congratulating a side on a loss, but like, like, you know, as Chris said, you know, they went there as no hopers. And I think La Rochelle thought that too, and they soon found out different. Um, one of the other games where you saw a massive gap in intensity um, was the game in Cape Town between the Stormers and Harlequins. Um, it was like, uh, I mean, it sounds unkind, but it was almost men against boys. Um, the intensity with which the Stormers came out, which was, for those of us who are familiar with South African rugby, particularly on its own, on its own patch, uh, they 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 really gave Harlequins no foothold at all, and it was it was interesting to see. You know, again, Marcus Smith was left trying to sort of make a silk purse out of a sow's ear because uh, it wasn't that there was a lack of effort. There's no question about that, but it was just that in the contact they could not deal. Harlequins could not deal with the uh, the physicality that the uh, um, that the Stormers brought, and what you see with the South African sides is that that DNA where they have extremely powerful forwards and electric uh, athleticism in the backs is is absolutely still there. And you could see it both with the, the Sharks uh, in their victory over Munster and the Stormers. So it's it's fascinating. You know, I mean, one of these South African sides could possibly go on and win it. Um, they've got the, uh, the 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 away draw in the um, in the quarterfinals. I think both of them, but then uh, they're not going to go quietly into the night. That's for sure. It was a strong weekend for the Stormers and the Sharks. And I saw Nick Powell. I saw an entertaining tweet the other day that said three South African teams have made the quarterfinals: Stormers, Sharks, and Visa Pollard Tigers. <laughs> Andre Pollard is coming good at the right time for South Africa, and that's very encouraging for them, isn't it? I actually, I, I wasn't doing anything on Friday night, so I decided to stick that on. Um, I do wish I'd gone to the pub. Uh, however, um, no, it was the, the the pair of them were were very very good, um, and you know, it, I, I actually think it, it does show in a way the the one good thing that that, that you can say. I mean, obviously Harlequins didn't have a great. A, a great go at the weekend, but the Premiership did well in general as well. And obviously, the South African players that have come into the Premiership have, have massively benefited those teams. Um, but it was good to see three three Premiership teams going through into the uh, into the quarterfinals as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I thought, although all all three of them were tested to varying degrees. I thought Saracens and Leicester in particular look like they've got the players, particularly when you factor in all being fit, um, internationals back. They look like the players that can cause a lot of the teams in the competition uh, real problems. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, it was a solid performance from Tigers. And 
the way that they've got their season back on track after that dip in January has been hugely impressive. I, I thought after um, Simfield and obviously Borthwick when I thought the defence is really going to struggle, they're going to be low on confidence, but they, they completely turned it around around February time. And yeah, I mean, you look at their defence on, on Friday night and it just goes to show you the, the, the strides they've made after that initial dip. Mm. I think that what you say about, uh, you know, I, I mean, Visa, obviously, we know what he brings, but um, Pollard initially, he had a pretty, um, you know, coming back from injury, he didn't, he, you know, he took, he's taken a bit of time to find himself there, but he's he, he's now given them a direction and a um, a shape that they didn't have. And um, that will make them that'll make them uh, an awkward proposition for Leinster. I still expect Leinster to win that game given home advantage. I think Saracens won't find La Rochelle um, uh, sort of missing anything in terms of motivation uh, when it comes to that game. So I think that the two English sides that the Premiership sides that are away, um, are going to are going to find it um, it it's going to be difficult for them to get through to the semis. Um, and you wouldn't expect Exeter to find it very easy at home, would you? The way the way Exeter were playing, I mean, they were very lucky to get out of that. They um, really were. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the the Mercer sending off was a um, you know was again another controversial. Um, uh, head impact in, uh, incident, um, but the way that Montpellier came back into that game with fourteen men, <laughs> and and almost took it, and they and again, you know, I mean, they're still mucking around with their sides, aren't they? You know, before these European Cup games, it wasn't their strongest side. I don't know. Oh, where... well, that's that's San Andre all over, isn't it? I mean, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he is an absolute tinkerer with um, with, with selections. But so, talking of Mercer, and I know we've mentioned him um, periodically over the last few months. But crikey, he looks the real deal in the moment. I mean, while he was on the field before before he applied shoulder to head, and it wasn't the worst you've ever seen. But under the, under the laws, I don't think they had vast amounts of choice. Yeah. Again, um, I think it was. Uh, his footwork, which was always very good at Bath, uh, and he was a relative lightweight when he was playing at Bath, and his footwork got him out of trouble, as well as discomforting and, and sort of dis discombobulating defences. It got him out of personal trouble when people were lining him up and smashing. But now he's he's a bigger specimen. Uh, he he's still got still got the full range of skills and he's a leader in that Montpellier side. And that can't be the easiest side to lead, actually, because it is a sort of strange team pulled together from all points. He looks um, at a different level of fitness than yes. he did when he was playing at Bath. Yes. And, yeah. you know, it's been transformative for him. Yeah. Um, but it, it will be, you know, the Stormers, if, if the Stormers... You know, we've said about the South African sides that they're they're sort of they're good travellers by and large, and uh, if if the Stormers can bring even you know sixty percent of what they bought or seventy percent of what they bought to that uh, game in Cape Town against Quinns to Sandy Park, it's going to be a difficult day for Exeter. Yeah, I think they might be too good for Exeter. Let's run through the games then in terms of predictions. Um, 
I actually, I'm going to say that Leinster versus Leicester are all predicting a Leinster win. Stop me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Could I get a Toulouse Sharks prediction from the floor, please? I think Toulouse win that game at home. So do I. Toulouse. Nick? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Exeter versus Stormers, we're all saying Stormers. Every chance, I would say. And I'd love it if Exeter won, but yeah. No, I, I think it's unlikely. I'll go it? Stormers. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure Exeter are that uh, uh, by their standards. I'm not sure they're 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 anywhere near a peak at the moment. No, well, they they really that you know. I mean, to be fair to them, they really you know they dug in to come back in that. Oh, game. they fight hard. Yes, they do. Yeah, they were under a lot of pressure, and they, you know, they really they all turn into career. Jack Noel, don't they? They all turn into Jack Noel when 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 they're, when they're up against a wall. They got yeah. fifteen Jack Noel. I mean, Jack Noel, <laughs> Jack Noel. In in what was a mere Exeter performance in many respects, Jack Noel was just in all the mucky stuff, all the stuff that Maggie used to do. He was absolutely brilliant the yeah. weekend. He's, he's, he is, whoever would, they weren't joking when they said he could play in the back row he, because he just as well played in the back row when, when, he, when he plays as he did at the weekend. He was terrific in all, in all the stuff that hurts. He was brilliant. I mean, you would not have have uh, put money on them coming back and winning that. Oh. And um, you know, the again, yeah, Nowell was exceptional in that. I think he popped up in that movement about five times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're unanimous so far. La Rochelle versus Saracens. I'm going to say Saracens, and Nick, you were swearing towards La Rochelle. Yeah, I'd say La Rochelle. Okay, Chris. I th- I think that's. Uh... I think that's the tie of the round. Yeah. I do think that's... I I mean, I love quarterfinal weekend anyway. It always used to be the best weekend of the season as far as I was concerned. And I think there are some really very good games. And much as I have a problem with the South African element in this for for reasons not to do with their rugby, um, um, you know, the two big crowds in Cape Town and Durban at the weekend, it, it did bring something. Uh, without a doubt, and they've they certainly um, they've certainly backed things up on the pitch. So um, yes, it's all playing a part, but I still think in tradition in a traditional way, the tide around is is La Rochelle and Saracens. I wouldn't give them, given the fact that I confidently expected Wales to beat Ireland in the first round of the Six Nations. I will not be putting large amounts of money uh, on the outcome. I think that's a heck of a game. I can see how Saracens can win the game. But I think they will have to play extremely well. Now get off the fence. Who's going to win it? No, no. I'm uh, look. Um, I'm I'm sitting on a fence um, um, almost as wide as the one Bill Beaumont spent a lifetime sitting on. And believe me, that's a big fence. Um, I'm I I can't I can't pick that one. I can't I cannot pick that one. It's interesting that you gave me a hard time for continuously bringing up that Wales Ireland prediction, but you keep bringing mm. it up unprompted. Well, I've, I've found the Samaritans and they've talked me through it and I've made my peace. <laughs> um, um, I've made my peace with that incident and and, I, and, and look, I have to own it. And here <laughs> If I you am, really want to own it, you'll you'll make a prediction on this game. Here, yeah. I, am, here I am owning it. Um, who's refereeing? Who's, who's refereeing the um, La Rochelle game? Do we know? No, no idea. You've got to back... Yeah. Chris, just pick someone... Back um, Saracens, Saracens. Okay. Nick. Yeah, I, I'm with Chris. I think I think Saracens. You know, just feel like they're they're just coming into their peak now. 
Uh, and with those international players coming back, uh, I think I think they're looking really good. So we've got three Saracens and then Nick Kane, the wooden spooner for this year's Predictions League, predicting La Rochelle. So just maybe... about to come roaring back. In... <laughs> yeah, we'll never be allowed to forget it if he does. Vindication impending. Well, we the majority is always week. wrong. But it will be a hell of a weekend and certainly one of the weekends of the season, as Chris puts it. Right, man, that was a um, a jam-packed episode, but I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.